So as I mentioned earlier, we're going through Nehemiah, going through our series called Restoration. We're on uh, chapter 5 now. We'll be looking at chapter 5 through 19. So if you want to get your Bibles ready, we'll be reading through that in just a minute. Years ago, a large statue of Christ was built on the, in the mountains of the Andes Mountains. And it was right on the border between Argentina and Chile. And it was called Christ of the Andes. You should see a picture up there right now. This is where it, what it looks like, and, and it's right on the border of these two countries. Now, the, the, the statue symbolizes this, this peace treaty that they did. This, they were in conflict for years, and, and this symbolized the, a pledge between the two. They wouldn't, wouldn't fight anymore. And as long as that statue stands, there would be peace between Chile and Argentina. Now, shortly after the statue was put up, the, the folks in Chile, the Chileans, they started to get a little because they felt that they were kind of dipped on this because Jesus' um, back was turned toward Chile. So they get a little bit, it was just slightly turned, and they started getting upset, and they started getting uh, mad about this, and they felt like they were very you know, dishonored and, and, and mistreated. Tempers started to get uh, high, and there was this conflict going on until the brilliance of this journalist wrote something. He wrote in the paper, he said, in an editorial, he said, the statue of Christ faces Argentina because the people of Argentina need watching people in Chile. So that kind of, there's a, a laugh happened, and they just started, all of a sudden tempers started going down. And it's been there since, uh, I believe it was the 1920s, if I remember correctly. But it's been there a long time, and there's been peace around there. Isn't it amazing? how we're prone as human beings to, to find conflict and to, to argue and fight about some of the silliest things. I remember uh, there's a story about a, a church out in Kentucky that there was this big church controversy because they needed a new roof. And one of them wanted painted uh, one color. It was those older metal roofs. And wanted it painted one color. The other wanted it a different color. And and they just argued and argued and argued until they finally settled it. They painted one half one color and the other half the other color. That's how they solved the problem. See, we can find an excuse or reason for conflict in just about anything. If you pick up the daily paper, the newspaper, you're, you're going to find conflict. You turn on the TV, and the news, we see conflict all over the place. Whether it's politics or, or war or, or uh, uh, local things in, in our our state and around our community, you're going to find conflict everywhere. Churches, so-called family of God, whose place is the most noted to be a place where we should have peace and, and, and Christ's love. And there's churches that will conflict. We hear about denominational conflicts. We hear about um, state-level conflicts. Right now we have two state conventions, and one of them is making a big vote. And, and this vote can really split the denomination the state so there's there's conflicts everywhere we read reports regularly about about churches that split over over what i consider very silly things there's also the issue of a family there's family if, if you're if you're in a larger family there's conflict there's always going to be that one person that's going to that's going to bump heads with somebody else we all have that wacky cousin or that, that wacky uncle or something that, that fights and bickers. I think every family has one. 
as we continue our series and through the book of Nehemiah, we learn that Nehemiah faced a number of challenges. He faced a number of challenges in that first four chapters we've read through. We see some of those challenges. We see in chapter 1, he was faced with a personal challenge. When he heard about the, the people and what's happening in Jerusalem, he broke down and got on his knees, and he was really bothered by that. It was a personal challenge. He, <clears throat> he wept, and he went right into prayer. In chapter 2, we see a political challenge. He, when asked by the king what was going on, he had to deal with that. He had to, he had to deal with that personal challenge, but also that political challenge of, does he say something? Does he follow God and say something about this? And remember, he shot up that little quick prayer right when the king asked him about it, and he turned and he asked, uh, did a quick prayer, and then he went up to the king and answered his question. In chapter 3, we see administrative challenges he faced. The challenges of, of taking the right workers and placing them in the right, build, right areas and organizing things and organizing the rebuilding of this wall. So there's those challenges. Now, in chapter 5, we, we move on to new, cha- uh, new challenges he faces. Chapter 5, Nehemiah faced another challenge and it's conflict resolution. Conflict amongst the people. The challenge of dealing with church people. The conflict of dealing with the Jewish population there. So open your Bibles to chapter 5. We'll be reading through 1 through 19, and then we'll, we'll dig in and see what we can learn from Nehemiah. Starting in verse 1, and it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against the Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, We, our sons, and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we have mortgaged our, our fields and vineyards and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying that we have borrowed money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are, like, are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subject, subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already, are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry of these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and, and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you are selling your own countrymen and we have bought them to... And we have bought them back. They, reminded, they remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what, are you doing? what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and in, not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from this house and property everyone who does not keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. 
The whole assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Furthermore, from the day, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to the, be the governor in the land of Judah, from the twelfth year until, the, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, I have... I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine for them, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but I did not do this because of the fear of the Lord, fear of God. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of the wall, and, I, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We did not buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every ten days. But I did not demand the food allotted to the governor because the burdens on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word and we... His character and what kind of man he is in this. Open our hearts and our minds to your word so we can learn from you, Lord, and teach us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that we've come to chapter 5, we see that there's this, this conflict coming on. There's, remember last week there was this conflict for the, the people from the outside, the external conflict. That was the Tobiah and, and Sanballat. They were, they were forced outside and they were surrounded. Area, and they're intimidating the people. But now there's, and, and well, Nehemiah with that, and now there's some change. Now there's some, some conflict of the people themselves. The people are starting to self-destruct and grievances, uh, and there's these festering grievances, and they're starting to stress, and, 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 and it's starting to come out. The, the workers face a new enemy. And it was harder to conquer than the previous ones from the previous chapter. Nehemiah stopped working. He turned his attention to this problem between its workers. While their external enemies helped rally the people, remember the external enemies helped rally the people together, internal conflict threatened to divide and destroy them. See, it's much easier to find an enemy who attacks us than it is forgive and deal with a friend or a loved one who hurts us. It's easier to fight an enemy who attacks us than forgive and restore a friend who hurts us. So a word in, in that first chapter and in in, in actually the first verse that really sums up the whole chapter is against. People were against each other. There's really some major conflict here and, and some fighting. Conflict was brewing Tension was mounting and horns were locked. I mean, they were just frustrated. Let's look at some of the complaints that Nehemiah heard in the first five verses. In verse 1, we see the people are starting to get at odds with each other. They're starting to, to fight. And so they're starting to, to fester. Uh, in, in the midst of this great work that they're doing, they're building Jerusalem. It's been destroyed and they're building it. And things are going. Remember, they, they worked with all their hearts. They were excited about but now, they're, they're conflict, and they're starting to, to get at each other. And in verse 1, it says, the men and their wives raised a great outcry to the brothers. A great outcry. This isn't just a little dispute. 
This isn't just, you know, oh man, I wanted chicken for lunch today, but I got pizza. It's not like a little disappointment. This is a major conflict. This is a major uh, uh, fight going on. They weren't crying out against the Samaritans. They weren't crying out the Ammonites. They weren't crying out about Samballot and all these guys. They were crying out about their own brethren, their own people, fellow believers. The city in Jerusalem lies in ruins, and people are powerless to help themselves. They're desperate. See, when you get in a desperate situation, and a desperate, uh, desperation, you, you, you get where you're willing to do just about anything, and, and, and that stress and that fear really come out. You really start to see it. Do you remember uh, Katrina a few years back? We saw a lot of people that came to help people in Katrina, but we also saw what? We saw people that were taking advantage of situations and, and, and taking advantage of other people. We also saw it up here in White Sulphur. We had a lot of people, Samaritan's Purse and all these people coming out, but didn't we see some stuff about some people? You've got to be weary about who you're giving gifts to because we had these people coming along, taking advantage of that, saying, yeah, we're helping. Yeah, we're an organization. We're helping this and this and this, and, and we're helping the people here, but they're really just taking it for themselves. See, that's what happens sometimes. That's similar to what we see in the text. We see people that are, that are taking advantage of the situation. We see people that are, that are really not out for, the, for helping others. They're really just taking advantage of others. Now, there are four different groups in this, in this text. In the first, in, in verse two through, four, or 2 through 5, we see four different groups that are complaining here. And the first one is there's people who own land but had no food. Oh, I'm sorry, I had no land and was having a hard time with food. And needed food. The population was increasing. There was a famine going on. They didn't have any land, uh, land or anything. And they were working hard on the wall, so they didn't have time to, to plant anything. And they needed food. They didn't have the resources. That was in verse 2. Verse 3. Landowners who have mortgaged their properties to buy food. Okay, so then you have the other people that had a house or had some land, but they're busy working on the wall. And, and, and paying these high taxes and all these different things were going on. And so what do they do? They mortgage their property in order to buy enough food to take care of their family. And, they, and the, the, a lot of these lands were being repossessed by these mortgage lenders. So they would house, they couldn't pay it, they're building the wall, they can't, you know, these, uh, they're, they're not being able to make more money, and so they are getting repossessed. So they're losing out. Another group complained that the taxes were too high and that they're borrowing to pay the taxes. That's in verse 4. And we had, in verse 5, the worst group. This was the group that exploited others. The wealthy were making loans at, at huge interest rates and taking the land and children as collateral. That's what it talks about. They're uh, sending these people off or, and selling these kids off. Families had to choose between starvation and servitude. When the crops failed because of the famine, creditors took their property and took the kids and sold them into slavery to make their money. It's very different than what we see in Deuteronomy earlier years of how we are supposed to treat each other and how they were supposed to treat each other. Deuteronomy 23, it'll be up on the screen. 19 and 20, it says, Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in, every, in everything you put your hand to in the land 
you're entering to possess. See, there was, so we're supposed to charge these huge interests to other people, to their fellow brothers. You're supposed to take care of each other. That's what, all through Deuteronomy, you see these great principles of, of how to treat each other and how to take care of one another. And this is just one of them. While it wasn't against God's law to charge interest to one another, they were not to act like pawnbrokers. They were not to act like loan sharks. They weren't supposed to act like bankers that, that have huge interest rates and taking advantage of other people. They're not supposed to do that for, to their fellow Jews. That's, that's what they weren't. They weren't supposed to do that at all. But they were doing it anyway. So when Nehemiah heard these complaints, heard these five complaints and these different situations, now in verses 6 through 13, we see some steps that Nehemiah took to deal with it. We see some steps that he took to take care of the strife and the, the, the frustration of the people. In verse, uh, in verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Nehemiah said he was really angry. It wasn't just, just you know, a little annoyed. He was really ticked off. He, it lit him up. It wasn't that Nehemiah had a short fuse or even a bad temper. What the Bible calls this is what they call righteous anger. It's a legitimate anger. Moses had that when he destroyed the tablets. He was angry at his fellow brethren, and he destroyed the tablets. Righteous anger. Jesus did it. When he, when he saw the hardened hearts of the Pharisees, he was angry. Jesus did it when he cleared out the temple yard for the money changers. That's a righteous anger. While Nehemiah was very angry, in verse 7 it says he took time to reflect. He took time to ponder on the situation. He didn't just react with, with anger and go in and just start yelling at everybody. He took a moment and he pondered the situation. In the English Bible it says, I mastered my feelings. Hebrew Bible says, my heart consulted within me. He reflected on it. He got a hold of his feelings about it and and. and some time to think about his situation instead of just going off he took a deep breath and he thought about it for a while he did what proverbs 16 says and challenges us to do he he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city after thinking things over he published he decided to confront the people he decided to confront those who were selfish about how they were treating his fellow brethren. And since it, it involved the whole nation, it demanded a public rebuke. He wasn't just going to grab a couple people and talk to them and do some one-on-one counseling. No, he was going out and he was going to publicly ab- abolish this and rebuke this. And his rebuke consisted of six different appeals, six different things that he touched on. One is that he appealed to their love in verse 7. Nehemiah reminded them that they were robbing... Not just the Gentiles, the, the word he uses is, he uses the word brother four different times in this. He probably remembered Psalms 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And he was probably ta- thinking about that when he, when he confronted them. He reminded them of God's redemptive purpose in verse 8. He reminded them that about Egypt and their captivity and, and, and that they were freed. And now they're returning their, their own people back into bondage. See, they went through all this bondage, and then they 
back to Jerusalem for a while, and they were in bondage for, I think, over 100 years. There was a little bit of people who were coming back, a little waves. And now, they, they, so it's early to remember this bondage that they're in, and now they're turning ancestors back into bondage. So he, remember, he reminded them of God's redemptive purpose. He appealed to God's word. Nehemiah calls them on the carpet. He says, what you're doing is not right. And he confronts them directly. And as we learned, he, he, if we're going to go, we, we can't go against God's command. He also needed to remind, uh, remind them of their witness. Remind them of who they are. It was supposed to be a light of the world. It's God's chosen people, and God's message was going to go through this people, and they're supposed to be a light to the world. And in the future, Jesus was going to come through that and be the ultimate light to the world. They were to walk and fear the Lord in order to avoid the reproach of their enemies. Because they, were, they weren't right with the relationship with God, they weren't able to make a positive impact around them. To other people he also appealed to his own actions in chapter in verse uh, 10 and 11 he appealed he goes and starts talking about how he be responded and how he behaved and he used himself as a positive example of how they should react nehemiah lent money didn't charge interest he had integrity when when he told the the other money lenders to stop what they're doing he says give them back their stuff immediately. Give them back the fields, give them back the houses, the vineyards, the olive vineyards, the olive oil, and he tells them to give it all back. Stop doing this. And finally, he appealed to the judgment of God. I love what he says in verse 12 because it shows that they really did want to do what was right. They were just... So in confronting them, they really had the right heart because look what it says. It says, we will give it back and we will not demand Anything more from them. We'll do as you say. So he confronts them on their behavior, confronts them on what's going on, and he says, look, this isn't right. This is not the way we're supposed to behave. We're not supposed to send these people back into bondage. We're not supposed to be overcharging them. We're not supposed to be taking their stuff. We're, we're rebuilding here. We need to be taking care, taking care of our brothers and sisters. Look, this is what I'm doing. I'm, this is the example I'm leading. That's what he's saying. I'm looking, look at my example. And I love how they turn around and said, basically, you're right. I will do what you say. We will do what you've asked. And they humbled themselves. And they started doing it. And they started changing. In describing his own lifestyle during this period, Nehemiah's memoirs tell us how he behaved. He was motivated by two Biblical principles during the 12 years he was governor of the land of Judah. The, he was devoted. The first principle is that he was devoted to the great commandment spelled out later by Jesus. We see it in Mark 12. Love your Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. That was one of the key principles he was talking here. Before thinking about how he could make a profit, he considered if it was pleasing to God. He considered, is this going to make God happy? Is it pleasing to Him? Am I honoring Him in, in what I'm doing? 
In verse 15, he describes how, pres- how previous governors got wealthy at the expense of the people. When comparing himself to the others, he stated, but out of reverence from God, I did not act like they did. Out of reverence from God, I didn't act like those old governors. See, he could have. He had the power, but he didn't. In verse 17 and 18, we see that he did not live an extravagant life, but instead lived generously and provided meals for others, not using his expense account to do so. He loved and revered God, and he also loved the people he was called to serve. What a great example for us to follow. What a great example of how to be. As leaders and as people of God, we need to see that example and apply that in our lives to be giving generous with our time, talents, and treasures. Church, but out there, be a light to the world. He's a great example for us to follow. Start first by focusing on God and His relationship with Him. And as you do, you have more love and compassion for others. It'll just go like a, a living spring in you. Even those you have conflict with. So here's some principles as we talk about some of these things, as we talk about walking through Nehemiah chapter 5 and we see this, the passage a little bit. That there's a few principles I want you to ponder on. Here's a few principles I want you to reflect on. Okay, the first one is there's a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. There's a direct correlation between our mission and how we treat each other. We must be a godly church before we can build a godly church. We must care for one another before we can hope to reach this community and county and our state for Christ. It's like that old saying, we have to lead by example. We have to be that example. Second is, relational problems are inevitable and we can't ignore them. Relational problems are going to happen. We're going to disagree and we can't ignore them. It's painful and easier to avoid the, the relational ruptures that happen instead of hitting them dead on. When, we, when we're confronted with things and when we're confronted with a, a conflict, it's so much easier to just put our head in the sand and walk away and ignore it than it is to confront it directly. If we don't, we're going to pay the price later on. It, you, we think it's going to go away, but it won't. The, the, the resentment will grow deeper roots. The resentments and the frustration will, will continue to grow. And we really haven't solved anything. It's painful to stop strife, but it will only get more difficult the longer you wait. Third is that we must take the initiative to restore the relationship whether we want to or not. We must take that initiative to restore the relationship whether we want to or not. Don't wait for that other person to come around. Well, I'm mad at that person. They should come to me and apologize. Don't wait around. You go talk to them. You need to go to them. Be tenacious on this one. Go. Go and confront the person in love. Not just, you know, you did this wrong and, and start pointing the finger. No, you, you go in love. You say, hey, I'm bothered by our conversation the other day. Can we talk about this? 
If you've been hurt, go and talk about it as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18. Go and show your brother their sin in private. In private. If you've hurt somebody else, go and confess it. If you know that you hurt somebody's feelings or somebody and you're aware of that, go and apologize. Make that first step. The fourth is God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. And that's something I want you to remember. God's reputation is at stake. People are watching Christians all around the world and they're looking and, and waiting for us to make these mistakes and not live up to what we preach. God's reputation is at stake. In John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that lost people would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in complete unity. When we unify as a body of Christ and we love and forgive one another and we, when we do have an issue, we work those things out with love, what do you think that's going to say about us? We're going to be showing God's love through our behavior. Let's be like Nehemiah and walk in the fear of the Lord. Not only avoid the criticism or not to avoid the criticism of unbelievers. But make God attractive in how we behave. We can do that by living in loving community with one another. Now there's four action steps. That was some things to think about that we can glean from this chapter. Well, let's put some things together. Some things that you can specifically do. Right now, four things that you can do when you have conflict. And this is how you're going to resolve it. One, make sure it's a moral issue. When you, get, when you find a conflict, like Nehemiah um, had these people in there, uh, he's heard those complaints, and he pondered on it. He realized that this was not just a petty thing. This was a moral issue. They were violating what God called them to do. They are violating God's law. They were, they were treating the brothers... And sisters, horribly. Nehemiah was angry because of the injustice he saw in verse 6. Now, if you've been wronged and sinned against, your anger is justified. It's understandable when you've been sinned against that you're mad. Completely understandable. But make sure that it's immoral. Make sure it's not something that's just your feelings got hurt because you didn't like the color of the carpet and you didn't get your way or something. Make sure it's a real issue, a moral issue. On the other hand, if somebody ticked you off and, it's, and it is personal, I mean, it is, it is something that, that, that is morally wrong, then you can go confront them and go talk to them and deal with it. But if it's something that is just personal preference, that's not a moral issue. We all have different likes and tastes. Give them some slack. If it's not a moral issue, give it some slack. Let it go. The second is to think before speaking. Think before speaking. Notice that Nehemiah took some time to ponder and he took some time to reflect on what, he, what was going on. He didn't just, in his anger, just go out and start yelling at everybody or start dealing with the problem because he's emotional. He's mad. So he took time to settle down and to think about it and make sure that he was going to approach it in a right way. If you've been sinned against, take some time to ponder what has been done and how you feel about it. See, anger is a gift from God. Jesus got angry. God gets angry. Anger is natural and it's okay. It's, it motivates 
motivates us to do something. When we get angry about sin, it motivates us to change. We get angry about something that happened, it motivates us. So anger itself is not bad, but how we respond in our anger is, or can be. It can easily backfire when, if we let our anger get out of control. The third thing is to meet face-to-face. Someone once said, confrontation is caring enough about another person to get the conflict on the table and talk about it. Meet face-to-face. Don't talk, about, uh, don't talk to other people about it. Don't talk, talk to your friends. Go face-to-face with the person. Spouses are, spouses are allowed, though. I'll tell you that. But don't go around church members and friends and, hey, did you know what someone did? And start talking to them. No. If you have a problem with somebody, go face-to-face with them. Just as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, we are also to be direct with the people we have strife with. Nehemiah went straight to the source. He just went straight to the people and confronted them directly. When we ignore this critical step, we often end up talking to someone else about how we've been offended by them. And, we start, and it turns out to be some slander and some gossip. It ends up to turn out that way. Now, it's one thing to go to wise counsel and get some wise counsel, but it's a whole different thing if you're talking to other people about it. And when you go to a third party, you create what they call a communication triangle. Go directly to the person you're upset with. And the fourth is seek resolution. The goal is to stop the conflict. The goal is to restore that relationship. The goal is to to have this relationship restored and get better. criticize our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to encourage them and make peace. Is there strife in your life? Is there somebody maybe in your life now that you have a conflict with? We need to, you need to bring that before God and ponder on that. Maybe at your home or your workplace or maybe someone here at the church. Whatever it is, don't let it fester. Don't let it sit there. I love how Nehemiah's uh, the people and responded to his challenge. It says in verse 13, it says, people did as they promised. If there's conflict in your life, make sure it's a moral issue, reflect on it, talk to the person, and seek a resolution. And you'll stop the conflict in your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Nehemiah and his story and, and his his memoirs here. He touches on so many different challenges and so many different things, Lord, that we can learn so much from his example, his godly example. Father God, thank you for, for his, his uh, example for us to follow today. And we ask you, Lord, to work in the lives of all of us. We, we all have conflict in our lives. We, we get them in different situations, different times, home, work, church, everywhere, Lord. And so, Father God, I ask you to help us resolve that conflict in love so we can live a peaceful, godly life. Give us an opportunity to show your love to others by by resolving these conflicts. We love you, Lord, and we're just so thankful for everybody here. 
And we praise you with all our being. In Jesus' name, amen.